What drove this journalist to find the truth behind the tragedy, regardless of the costs? What inspired an international figure to highlight the voices of those in conflict zones? Why did this activist command such enormous love and sympathy from the people who met him? Where will the world be without the visions of these unique individuals? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we do a special tribute to legendary figures who passed away in 2020 and leave behind legacies of courage, compassion, and dedication to those who remember their work. We contacted Richard Falk, Peter Koenig, and Margaret Flowers and vast amounts of audio to help take us through how their respective friends made an impact. On this week's program, a tribute to three great internationalists, saluting Robert Fisk, Andre Volchek, and Kevin Zeese. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 18th, 2020. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. With little more than a month left in office, will Trump pardon Julian Assange or commute his politicized indictment and UK imprisonment at the behest of his regime? Charges against Assange were and remain spurious. They're all about waging war on truth-telling investigative journalism the way it should be conducted, providing vital information on issues related to the rule of law, fundamental rights, and the public welfare. Everyone in the U.S. has the same right, what the First Amendment is all about, affirming speech, press, and academic freedoms. It's the most fundamental of democratic rights, what bipartisan hardliners in Washington want compromised and eliminated. That comes from the article, Pardon Julian Assange, under Article 2, Section 2 of U.S. Constitution by Stephen Lendman, posted December 16th. Upstate sheriffs led opposition to the legislation, which enjoyed strong support in the state's largest city, but was unpopular in rural counties. In the wake of the law's passage, at least one sheriff said outright that his deputies would not make arrests for violations. In California, A group of sheriffs from the state's southern counties recently said they wouldn't enforce a regional order for citizens to stay at home. Among them was Orange County Sheriff Don Barnes, who said in a statement that following health orders is, quote, 
a matter of personal responsibility and not a matter of law enforcement, unquote. And his office would not be dispatched for complaints about social events or face masks. The law does not allow us to go out and detain people over a public health order, said Sergeant Dennis Breckner, a spokesman for Barnes' department. That comes from the article, Local Sheriffs Are Pushing Back on Some of the Lockdown's Harsher Measures, by Gideon Bradshaw, posted December 16th, originally published at the American Conservative. A few months ago, the Venezuelan National Guard captured a plane that carried drugs in its airspace. The plane probably did the transport linking Colombia to some other region of the trafficking route. Most impressive, however, is that the aircraft contained official American identification. Although it is a curious event, especially considering that the U.S. has started a crusade against Venezuela, accusing the Maduro government of being involved in trafficking, it is far from an isolated case. This is just one example of the countless times the U.S. has been accused of being officially involved in drug trafficking activities. That comes from the article, U.S. wants to increase special agents in Latin America under anti-drug speech, by Lucas Leroz de Almeida, posted December 16th, originally published at Infobrex. In short, Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program, so enriching to 4.5% is just a symbolic protest. Likewise, Iran has started using more centrifuges and better ones, violating the terms of the JCPOA. Again, that move would shorten the time it would take them to make a bomb if they wanted to make a bomb. But no intelligence service assesses that they have made that decision. What Rouhani is signaling to Biden and to Europe is that if they want Iran to go back to observing the stringent stipulations of the JCPOA, they can have that, but they have to turn on the money spigots. That comes from the article, Iran's Rouhani to Biden. We will fulfill our nuclear obligations on day one if you return to 2015 deal. By Professor Juan Cole, posted December 16th, originally published at Informed Comment. Christmas was a week away, and he still had not bought the boy a nice present. Any present at this juncture would suffice. He had maybe $10 in his pocket, and he still had to get some lunch for himself. The groceries from the food bank were already saved for their dinner and tomorrow's breakfast. As the passers-by left his circle of vision, he could not help himself. He began to cry, just a tickle, but enough to feel a tear or two slowly slide down his cheek. That comes from the article, The Pandemic's Christmas Gift, $10 in His Pocket, by Philip A. Ferrugio, posted December 16th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Before we switch to our main topic, I would like to share a few words about last week's program. During the show, the main speaker, Rocco Galati, was sharing a statistic talking about deaths in Calgary attributable to COVID versus deaths due to murder. One thing we need 
we did not state is that the deaths were attributable to individuals under the age of 60. It was not specifying deaths in general. So I would like to apologize to all listeners who were thrown by that information. Now for our main show. Robert Fisk died on August, October 30th, 2020 at the St. Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin, Ireland after a suspected stroke. He was 74 years old. Fisk had led a unique career, traveling the major hotspots in the region from Lebanon to Algeria to Syria, as well as the Iran-Iraq War, the, Iraq, the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo, the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, the revolution in Iran, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, and the U.S. occupation of Iraq. He also became one of a few Western journalists to interview Osama bin Laden a total of three deck times. He began working for The Independent in 1989 and went on to receive several British and international journalism awards. Fisk, who is not a biased writer, reports honestly and with a precision of language that captures the moment of every scene he has encountered and he does so unafraid of the threats to his life. Here is an example of one of his articles as read by the man himself. Up to 1,700 Palestinians were murdered in the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in September of 1982. I was one of the first um, reporters to enter the camp. The murderers were the Christian Lebanese phalangist militia sent into the camp on the orders of Defense Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon. They were everywhere in the road, in laneways, in backyards and broken rooms, beneath crumpled masonry and across the top of garbage tips. The murderers, the Christian militiamen whom Israel had let into the camps to flush out terrorists, had only just left. In some cases, the blood was still wet on the ground. When we'd seen a hundred bodies, we stopped counting. Down every alleyway, there were corpses, women, young men, babies, grandparents, lying together in lazy and terrible profusion where they had been knifed or machine gunned to death. Each corridor through the rubble produced more bodies. The patients at a Palestinian hospital had disappeared after gunmen ordered the doctors to leave. Everywhere we found signs of hastily dug mass graves. Even while we were there, amid the evidence of such savagery, we could see the Israelis watching us. From the top of the tower block to the west, the second building on the Avenue Kamil Shamoun, we could see them staring at us through field glasses, scanning back and forth across the streets of corpses the lenses of the binoculars sometimes flashing in the sun as their gaze ranged through the camp. Lauren Jenkins of the Washington Post cursed a lot. I thought it was probably his way of controlling his feelings of nausea amid the terrible smell. We were breathing death. Jenkins immediately realized that the Israeli defense minister would have to bear some responsibility for this horror. My name is Richard Falk. I'm a uh, professor of international law who taught for a long time at Princeton University and in recent years have been connected with the University of California. And I had uh, an international relationship to the Palestinian struggle as a consequence of being special rapporteur on occupied Palestine uh, for the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, and in that connection, I had my first encounter with uh, Robert Fisk indirectly without actually uh, knowing him at the time, but uh, I was living at Princeton and a 
Libyan film crew was doing some kind of a documentary on the Palestinian issue and they were interviewing me and it happened to come just after a BBC program on uh, called Panorama, one of the main BBC programs that was devoted to the issue of whether uh, Israel was engaged in criminal policies and practices in their occupation of uh, Palestine. And uh, I had received and my wife had received death threats as a consequence of my participation on that BBC program. And we thought it was credible enough that we reported it to the local police who happened to be at my house at the time when this film crew came. And they, unknown to me, told Robert Fisk about this, and he wrote a column saying I was under dire threat. I'm not sure that I was, but he wrote this column saying that I was uh, living in a, a situation where, uh, because I had spoken out on the, the Palestinian issue, uh, I was being uh, threatened in this kind of way. And it resulted in my receiving uh, messages from all over the world, praying for me and doing all kinds of things. It wasn't, in my view, I wasn't under such threat. And if he had been a more uh, detail-oriented journalist, he probably would have checked with me as to what the situation was. Fisk was the single son of William and Peggy Fisk. He grew up in Maidstone in Kent, England, his father was rather disagreeable, but in public discussion, Fisk recounted the influence the man had from the time he served during the First World War. At that age, he was not a conservative, law-abiding man. And the greatest, I think the greatest thing he ever did in his life, in my eyes anyway, was that he was ordered to execute an Australian soldier, the same age as my father, 19, who had killed a French gendarme in Paris. He had killed a French gendarme. And my father refused to carry out, to command the execution squad. He refused the order. And I think, in retrospect, that was the finest thing he ever did. The Australian soldier, of course, was shot anyway. I actually went to the uh, public record office in London and dug up the files. That dark devil that's an old journalist, let's just check he didn't command the firing squad. Uh, but it was another officer. It wasn't my father. His punishment was to go around the Western Front digging up British corpses and putting them in those great war cemeteries that some of you would have seen on the site of the Somme and the great battles of northern France, uh, which means that ever afterwards in his life, he uh, was, hated the smell of dead animals or dead birds. Um, but looking back on it, it was a remarkable thing that he did. Um, and, you see, he too challenged authority. He, he, he refused to accept the word of power you know, the way in which generals and presidents and prime ministers say you must act, and journalists too, I might add. Um, and for me, that was a very important moment because his war, the First World War, um, gave birth to the modern Middle East. In fact, in the 17 months that followed the First World War, um, the British and French, who were the principal victors, the Americans were not so powerful then, of course, we created the borders of Northern Ireland, Yugoslavia, and most of the Middle East, and I spent my entire 
professional career, as I've said before, watching the people inside these borders burn. Belfast, Belgrade, Baghdad, Beirut. Um, and I, I've become convinced that that war in which my father fought, in which he showed such independence of mind and spirit, um, gave us the hell disaster that we're now in in the Middle East. And so he has a central role in the book, in the, in the, in the middle chapter. Um, I even went back to the French hotel where the, um, where the Australian killed the policeman. Um, and in fact, uh, I think I also brought him into the book because I felt regret that I hadn't seen him in the months he was dying. But in a way, this little incident uh, illustrated his particular style, which was one of being uh, fiercely independent and uh, trying to find what the truth was in a manner that looked at the underlying reality and not, and not so much concerned with what typical journalists are to get the facts right. His, his concern was with how does this relate to justice and injustice and how do I uh, formulate a story in such a way as to express the passion that should address a question of this sort. And it was this quality of uh, what one might call advocacy journalism, where he uh, didn't hide the fact that he cared about how one interpreted uh, reality, and he cared less about getting the details exactly correct. And, and it was that combination that I found very fascinating and almost unique in my experience where most mainstream uh, respected journalists uh, are uh, much more concerned with getting the details right and uh, not, uh, not departing very much from conventional wisdom on the larger implications of the story. He had this uh, very strong experience in Afghanistan where he was identified as a uh, Westerner and beaten very badly, physically beaten very badly. And then when he was interviewed about the incident, he said, I would have done the same thing if I was an Afghan, that uh, this Western encroachment on their uh, sovereign rights was something uh, that should be resisted. And so he, he had the courage to, uh, to stand behind his convictions. And as I say, very few journalists of any prominence have that courage. And uh, if they do have that courage, they usually lose their job. And uh, so he is an exceptional personality. I've known a few others that I would put in a similar category, each of them very uh, different in their uh, style and in the way in which they uh, carry into the real world their commitment, but each standing up for what they believe to be true and important.
and uh, telling, uh, narrating important public events in ways that challenge the uh, official orthodoxy of the moment. Well, I think it, it somewhat goes with the territory that uh, once you take positions that are very threatening to the uh, uh, kind of establishment uh, viewpoints, the uh, defenders of those viewpoints tend to play dirty and to uh, to distract attention from the mess from the message by uh, viciously attacking the messenger. I had some experience of this sort when I was with the UN uh, being attacked on uh, my uh, anti-Israeli uh, uh, reports and otherwise. Uh, the reports were not substantively challenged uh, because it was very difficult to do so. The evidence was so clear. So the whole effort was to shift the conversation to my supposed anti-Israeli uh, uh, bias and being uh, calling me a self-hating Jew and the other, other kinds of ways, uh, paths of defamation. You know, these people who use anti-Semitism as a scourge of honorable people are going to make anti-Semitism respectable and shame upon them for it. The real anti-Semites are out there. We know that. And I'll fight them along with anyone else who wants to. But that word is becoming a most dishonorable phrase in the mouths of many people who want to shut us up. And that is why, in my view, why Europeans, why Europeans can speak so much more freely than you can. You have the land of the free, but there are certain subjects you may not speak about. Edward Said pointed this out. He said, you can talk about gays, you can talk about blacks, anything, but not certain aspects of the Middle East. And criticism of Israel will bring you disaster. And this is a big American problem. I rather think you're getting out over it. You're, you're beginning to be able to stand up to this kind of slander. In Britain, we have much stricter laws than you have on this. If anyone writes me a letter calling me an anti-Semite, they're warned, next time you get a lawyer's letter, I'm going to court. Uh, John Malkovich, in an interview in The Observer, called me a vicious anti-Semite, and our lawyers went for them straight away, they withdrew it from the website, and The Observer carried an apology in print on the center page. And that's the way to deal with these people. I think with uh, Robert Fisk, he was a person that uh, never tried to be gracious to his adversaries. And so he, uh, was a, a, he, he was a kind of fighter and had a, a belligerent side to his own way of dealing with some of these issues. And so you had that kind of name calling to defamation coming toward him, particularly uh, on Israel, and then uh, Syria too aroused very strong emotions uh, during the years of uh, uh, strife. Uh, but with Israel, he was one of the early and strongest uh, as, uh, per, uh, journalists of international standing who uh, really expressed solidarity 
with the Palestinian struggle for their basic rights. And that, of course, uh, led to a pushback uh, you, playing the anti-Semitic card. Again, a way of not looking at the merits of what he was arguing and expressing, but trying to uh, discredit the, ob the observer and not deal with what was observed. Um, if you were reporting the slave trade in the 18th century, you wouldn't give equal time to the slave ship captain. If you, if you, were, reporting, if you were reporting the liberation of a Nazi extermination camp, you wouldn't give equal time to an SS spokesman. You'd talk to the victims and the survivors. There are moral issues. We are human beings too. You know, if you go outside and you see some terrible atrocity, you're angry. I'm allowed to be angry too. And name the, the bad guys. Why not? Why have we got to give 50% each, each way? I don't... Sabra Shatila. I didn't give 50% of my story to an Israeli government spokesman. And the Sabaro pizzeria bombing, I didn't give any time at all except for one line to Islamic Jihad. I don't, I don't try to equal people out. An atrocity is an atrocity and we're human beings and we should respond to it emotionally in every other way like human beings. And if we... If we don't, there's no point in being a foreign correspondent in the Middle East. The dangers are far too great to waste on agency-type reporting or New York Times-type reporting. Well, I think that he represents what uh, democracy really depends upon, and that is fearless journalists dedicated to justice and truth, and that uh, it's a precious resource for a democratic society, and it's a scarce resource. Uh, so, and it's scarce partly because not many individuals have the courage, fortitude, and intelligence uh, to uh, stand up for an independent line of interpretation. And then when they do, it's very hard for them to retain uh, prominent uh, uh, positions within mainstream media. He really was exceptional in that sense that he was with the independent in Britain for many years. And that's a uh, uh, one of the notable uh, newspapers. And uh, I think it was because he built up such a following that they were reluctant to uh, not uh, allow him to continue to publish in their uh, venue. But as I say, he is, uh, his loss is really felt particularly in the Middle East context where I can't think of anyone else that does the sort of job that he does with the sort of credibility and status that he had. And so it it is a uh, huge loss, and it's a uh, reminder that we really depend upon this kind of truth-telling journalists in this period, particularly when governments, including the so-called democratic governments, rely on secrecy and all kinds of manipulation to hide the truth from their own citizens. You need this kind of exposure. And of course, those that do expose 
are subject to uh, severe uh, pushback, as Julian Assange is the most uh, prominent current example of someone that tried to break this wall of silence and dishonesty that separates people from the realities that confront uh, the world. All I'm trying to tell you is that everything you were told about this war is wrong. I've been to Syria about 32 times since the war began, and I see it with my own eyes. And the amazing thing is that when I get rung up by American radio stations when I get back to Beirut and I've got good telephone lines, the questions they ask bear no relation to what I've just seen. The captured towns they talk about are not captured. The, the Daesh they talk about is in fact far more evil, far worse than they imagine. When they think it's a cult, it's much worse. So one of the things I have to do in my job as a journalist is constantly go to the front lines. The audio you just heard were recorded by C-SPAN 2's Book TV on March 4, 2007, receiving the Lanham Award followed by a conversation with Laura Flanders. We also heard from a recent interview with Richard Falk and from a lecture given in Winnipeg on November 11, 2019 and recorded by Paul Graham. We continue with our tribute after this brief break. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. On September 22, 2020, Andre Vilcek died in his sleep while being chauffeured in his car in Istanbul, Turkey. Born in Leningrad, what is now known as St. Petersburg, he became a political analyst and filmmaker, and he spent his life covering conflict. He's traveled to over 140 countries. He's been uncompromising in his efforts to be truthful and voice honest suffering in a climate where propaganda abounds. Here is an excerpt of a conversation recorded by Paul Graham in an April 2019 discussion at the University of Winnipeg, followed by an excerpt of a conversation he had with me the next day. The West didn't just... Uh didn't come to rescue, was cleaned Russia. And I know it. How I know it? Because I was digging money too at the time. I was a simultaneous UN interpreter. And I was paid $1,500 a day to interpret for corporations that were stripping Russia of uh, everything. From from AT&T to Crafts. That's just the example. I shouldn't say it because I'm still bound by some kind of a Secrecy, but why not? I was a kid. Um, like Soviet Union had a vessel to investigate the, with sonar the bottom of the sea, scientific vessel that could uh, go as low as six thousand uh, meters to. So Kraft, General Foods, met the Minister of Fishery of uh, Russian Republic. They got drunk, and they actually. Uh, convinced Russian Yeltsin's Minister of Fishery to sell this boat for scrap for one dollar. You know why? So it can be used for fishing deep water lobsters of the shore of Peru and Chile. Well, I did 
several assignments like that and I almost blew up my brains and I dropped everything and ran. I ran to Peru to cover the civil war. That was my end of the experiment with Western capitalism. And uh, this is what happened to Russia. It was totally stripped alive and everybody knew it. I was born in Leningrad. I, I lived there for some time as a child, but then I grew up in Czechoslovakia, which used to be Czechoslovakia, and now it's Czech Republic. Uh, we were under constant bombardment of the Western media. Uh, there was BBC, there was Voice of America, there was uh, Radio Free Europe, uh, in all imaginable local languages, Czech, Russian, uh, of course English. Uh, there were uh, German television stations beaming uh, from across the border from Bavaria because uh, I was growing up in Pilsen, which was uh, literally 50 kilometers from the border. So uh, what they created uh, was this uh, uh, atmosphere that in order to be young and cool and really uh, uh, up to the... Uh, times you had to follow western trends you had to uh, consider communism uh, and uh, non-western uh, way of life as boring uh, many people literally sold the ideas of internationalism for a pair of designer jeans and it was uh, unfortunately happening also in the Soviet Union at the end of the era during the Gorbachev uh, period. People were totally hooked on the, on the Western propaganda. They were uh, literally spitting at their soldiers who went uh, to perform their internationalist duty in Afghanistan. So uh, the Western media had tremendous, has tremendous uh, impact on lives of the people. It uh, actually, the Western propaganda, not only media, because uh, uh, propaganda includes both media and uh, so-called uh, academia or education system. So unfortunately, uh, this is how uh, both Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia decomposed, because or Eastern Bloc decomposed under the tremendous pressure of the of the western propaganda that's why if we are going to ever if we are really fighting against western imperialism the main front is ideological front my good friend peter koenig who used to be an economist at world bank and turned around the world bank now he's advising them as we speak on de-dollarization uh, uh, My name is Peter Tronik. I'm uh, an economist and a geopolitical analyst, uh, writing a lot for Global Research and others. And, uh, well, I've worked for the World Bank for over 30 years and for WHO, including WHO, and seen a lot of the world uh, from a different angle than I see it now, but I've learned a lot uh, from these experiences. Well, Andrew... Uh, let me say, was a very good friend and a compa. He, although we didn't see each other very much, uh, we communicated with WhatsApp uh, often and at times for hours intensely at night and so on, because he was always in a different part of the world. How did we meet, actually? We met uh, virtually the first time 
uh, I don't know how many years ago, maybe five, six years ago, uh, through the fact that I liked uh, an article very much. I always liked what he was writing and I communicated with him. I contacted him and that, uh, that way we established uh, contact of uh, two virtual friends who uh, were thinkalikes in many ways, in most ways. Andrew, what can I say, was a very, very committed person, committed to a cause and committed uh, to the disadvantaged people, always fighting for justice. He was always available to go where things went wrong. And many times these were war zones, actually very often. His life was threatened. Uh, he wasn't afraid of dangerous situations to the country. Uh, wherever he thought uh, his reporting of the truth could make a difference, there was Andrew. And he was very often in life danger, you know, bullets uh, flying nearby and, and, and so on. So he was in situations where other journalists probably wouldn't go. And, uh, and this is clearly something that uh, differentiates him from, from other journalists, from regular journalists. He was, he was where the action was. He went into the field. He wanted to see for himself uh, what it was like. Uh, he didn't report just from a hotel room because uh, he was watching CNN news and then reported on it. No, that was not Andre. Ben Rouswell was the greeted speaker visiting Winnipeg on April 3rd, 2019, speaking on the subject of How Democracy Dies, Lessons from Venezuela and the U.S. on behalf of the Canadian International Council. CKUW was there to record the conversation, and Andre used his uncompromising facts and knowledge to refute him. What I'm going to try and do is explain, from the experiences of what I saw in Venezuela, some standard techniques that populist politicians use to acquire power, and to stay in power, and then try and demonstrate how it, need, how it leads necessarily to citizens having less power over their lives and therefore being anti-democratic. Let me ask you something. What are you really doing? You mean, what you are you? Well, yes, you as, you uh, I know the, the embassies West. of Canada. Yes, the West, uh, your embassies, because we all very well know what you are doing uh, in Syria in the past, uh, how you were creating dissent. Uh, how you created opposition in Venezuela. I mean, you have blood on your hands. The, the people who are now suffering in Venezuela are not suffering because of some kind of a uh, divisive populism. It is because you implanted oppo so-called opposition. And what about Afghanistan, this wonderful place that you occupied? I mean, it has the lowest human uh, life expectancy in Asia, according to UNDP. Shortest uh, life ex expectancy according to the World Health Organization. Is this your way, really, how you see the world, how you operate? What is CIC? Is it more money for you to try to destabilize the countries further? I don't understand. And you stand here and you, you are talking about some details, something that is absolutely not important. Well, well anybody who ever worked in Venezuela knows how the uh, crisis was uh, created. It was absolutely clearly created by the West, by your embassies, not, of course, only Canadian embassy, U.S. embassy, European embassies, and so on. And you rely on the elites in Venezuela, which are bleeding the country to the ground. Also, the press. You talk about the press. Venezuelan press is the freest press in the world. 
they basically allowed, Chavez allowed any criticism. When I came first time after the revolution to Caracas, journalists were crying on my shoulder that they are actually supporting Chavez, but they would be fired if they would write anything uh, supportive of him. Why? Because the press is fully in the hands of the right wing in Venezuela, and it is until now. And you call it, uh, uh, you know, violation of press freedoms, I don't understand really what are you talking about, but this is not the world that I know, and it's not the world that most of the people know. We were kind of kindred spirits, uh, I, can, I can say that. And again, I mean, Andre is somebody who is not the usual journalist. He is somebody uh, who is, I can repeat what I said, so committed to the cause that at one point, uh, lots of people, and me too, I said, look, you have to take a break. You know, you can see that, that you're doing not well. Uh, you're killing yourself by running around and literally, uh, you know, flying around the globe from one place to another without rest, uh, without rest of any kind, and always exposed to this enormous stress, the travel stress and the stress of the situations that he was in. So he, his health really deteriorated. At one point, he wrote me a WhatsApp message and says, and from, I think it was from Bangkok and said, Peter, I'm taking the break you recommend. And he was there for about three days. And then he went on again. And of course, that, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't sufficient. And uh, in the very end, I saw an interview of him uh, with, I think, uh, with somebody from Russia today, if I'm not wrong, and uh, or Sputnik news, I, I forgot, but it doesn't matter. You know, it was a very good interview as he usually uh, does, but you could see from his face and from uh, from his posture that he, he was just not well. He was physically not well. He was strained and, and didn't, uh, didn't do well. And fortunately, his last days and uh, weeks maybe, or especially last hours, he was with his wife. Uh, and that, that's a good thing. He actually fell asleep and didn't wake up in, in the car that transported him to, uh, from the Black Sea to, to, um, to Istanbul together with his wife. I don't know what their plans were there. And uh, I talked or communicated rather with his wife a few times in the meantime. And uh, she is, of course, shocked still and it's hard for her to get over this enormous loss which i fully understand and, and she must feel of course much worse than anybody else that knew andre but uh, that's in a nutshell what i can say i really appreciated him and i miss him and uh, i think he is a great loss for especially independent journalism uh, he is what lots of journalists should be uh, uh, people talk about peace, but what they uh, mean is uh, keeping the status quo, because it's not a peace for the countries that live in absolute misery or that are forced to be occupied. Uh, it is peace for people who live in Toronto or uh, Washington or uh, Paris or London. Uh, they want peace. Of course, they don't want bombs to fall on them, but on other people, bombs are falling, or uh, and it can be either concrete bombs or abstract bombs. So uh, it is. Uh, there are good people in peace movements. In I saw, for example, in Regina in Canada, very good 
group of people, very dedicated group of people, and I'm sure they mean well. But uh, overall uh, obsession in the West with peace is overall obsession with keeping the status quo. Finally tonight, we salute Kevin Zeese. He died of a heart attack on September 6, 2020. Born in New York City in 1955, he had graduated from the George Washington University Law School in 1980 and went on to work on reforming drug laws. From there, he went on to become an activist addressing American wars, the Occupy Movement, and the Venezuela Solidarity Movement. He was also a press secretary and spokesman for Ralph Nader during his run for U.S. president in 2004. He met pediatrician Margaret Flowers and found common cause in his work. As well, he mentioned several individuals who admired his uncompromising spirit and drive. What follows is recording of tributes shared with listeners in Kevin's online memorial, Rest in Power, followed by an interview with Margaret Flowers. The acts of benevolence, the acts of um, Kevin defending, uh, you know, risking risking himself, his safety, uh, defending our our embassy because he knew he was defending the dignity of the Venezuelan people. It's um, it deserves not only my recognition, it deserves the recognition of all of Venezuela. So I want you, Margaret, and everybody in the family, and all the friends here to know that we are here uh, today um, in the name of all of Venezuela and Kevin would always be with us. He had this wonderful sense of humor, uh, which uh, was also self-depreciated and I think masked what uh, an incredibly exceptional person he was. Uh, And so when uh, I heard the news, uh, it was the void of Kevin that suddenly magnified how important he was to me and how special and unique he was. In the minds and the hearts of the people who knew you, but in generations down the line, who will hear your name exalted by the people you inspired to seize their own power and to change this world, even though we may not see tomorrow either. Thank you, Kevin, for everything you've done. We love you so much. We're so glad that your last day on earth was surrounded by warmth and love. KZ was the greatest white man I have ever known in my life. He was my personal John Brown, and every time I remember that he has helped to fuel the fire that boils the blood running through my veins, I would know I got something there and I cannot lose. Ashe, rest in power. You know, he really enjoyed, you know, spitting back in the face of the oppressors. And you could just see the the joy he got when the the food landed at his feet and he hauled it back in to Margaret 
and Anya. And, and I just thought about that moment so many times. I replayed that moment so many times in the past few days, just thinking about how Kevin not only was a tactician and a writer and a mentor to people like us who are younger than him. He helped you he, Nicaragua trip. He, well, he was someone who put his body on the line. And I was there in the beginning. I remember sleeping in a cardboard box and sleeping there for days. And uh, the weather started to get colder and colder. And the internal dynamics started to get more and more difficult. And at uh, some point, many of us said, okay, it's enough. And no, Kevin and Margaret stayed. We're going to keep on working on this, keep on working on this. And that was certainly the same sentiment in the Venezuelan embassy. Both his family and his colleagues and his people who he worked with would do well to see why he was so steady, effective, why he had this kind of stamina, and why he remained upbeat, refused to be discouraged, refused to withdraw into cynicism, and, and learn from it. Because it's not just having the right policy or having the right side that you're on is having the right personality having the right character uh, the week before kevin's sudden death he spoke at a webinar that many of us were involved in building uh called keep it in the streets and and he was really he began with a real punch uh with power to the people and and he ended his talk with saying don't underestimate ourselves and our power to make change. And, and then raise there were 900 wildcat strikes this year. There's millions of people in the streets. Uh, so it's that power of in the darkest days seeing the potential. Uh, we, we miss it, we value it. Uh, we thank you so much for continuing on with, with such determination and we will hold those, those values and that approach to our common work very much together. So, Kevin Zeese, Presente. My name is Margaret Flowers, and uh, Kevin and I were life partners for the last 10 years. We lived together and worked together. We were co-directors of Popular Resistance and co-hosts of Clearing the Fog Radio. Well, Kevin and I met in 2005 um we became friends and over those five years we became you know very good friends he you know kevin was really dedicated to the work that he did for social justice and he also felt really fortunate that he was able to spend pretty much his whole life doing that you know from high school to college and then to law school and then out of law school in 1980 he was you know, right into trying to end the drug war and mass incarceration. And he just felt incredibly lucky that he was able to, as he said, get away with it his, his whole life. And he just was one of those people that was really brilliant and had no ego and incredibly kind. He, you know, people would reach out to him all the time for help and he would take the time to help them. He was someone who made people feel safe when he was around because he had so much experience and you know he was always kind of looking out assessing the scene and you know what needed to be done and and uh and just uh had a big heart he mentored so many people throughout his lifetime and he worked on a really broad range of causes and kevin was the kind of person who kind of saw things before others did and so he often was really 
groundbreaking breaking in the work that he did for social justice and had the courage to take on things that other people you know might not have or didn't recognize were something that needed to be fought for and he was a staunch internationalist who believed in you know the liberation of people all around the world and that our struggles were connected and really before intersectionality became a big thing he was practicing that throughout his whole life well, I'm continuing the work that we built, continuing to direct popular resistance and, you know, do the radio show that we had started back in January of 2012, Clearing the Fog, you know, while we were still active in the Occupy movement. And his family, our family, you know, both my children and his children and um, cousins and sister and have all come together and created the Kevin Z's Emerging Activist Fund and raised money and we're actually going to be giving our first grant out in January to try to continue to build Kevin's legacy through, you know, mentoring young people to become activists. So, you know, I just, um, you know, continuing to do what we had planned to do, you know, Kevin, when I would say, like, do you ever think that you would want to retire? And he said, no, why would I do that? I love what I'm doing. So we had decided that this was our life's work. And, you know, even though Kevin is not here physically, he taught us a lot and he created a lot. And so we're working to continue pushing that forward. In April and May of 2019, we stayed inside of the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, DC to try to stop the US government from handing it over to a, you know, basically a US puppet, Juan Guaido, that had no base of legitimacy in Venezuela and had attempted coups and failed. So they were gonna, you know, give him the US embassy to try to use that as a base of more organizing or try to give some legitimacy to his failed coup attempt. And that was a really intense experience. There were you know, hundreds and hundreds of people that were involved in that and uh, people who stayed inside. But Kevin and I were two of the four that stayed till the end and then were arrested and went through a federal prosecution. And, you know, the, what was interesting in that is that, you know, seeing the U.S. government working hand in hand with these regime change agents who came to the embassy and surrounded it 24 hours a day and tried to, quote unquote, terrorize us out, as we heard them saying, and they cut off our power and our food supply and, and our water. And that just deepened our solidarity with the Venezuelan people more because, they've been going through the same thing at the hands of the US, you know, for decades now. And so it really gave us a little tiny taste of what they had been experiencing and just so much respect for their ability to resist. And then of course, going through the prosecution was quite an ordeal, but it ended up in a mistrial. And uh, actually we just finished our probation on December 2nd and the other two, Adrian Pine and David Paul and I traveled to Venezuela the next day to be official election observers for the National Assembly election down there. So that was a great way to kind of celebrate the end of that whole process. Kevin was just an amazing soul. He had a huge heart. He had a great sense of humor. He loved to joke around, not, not making fun of other people, but usually, you know, making fun of himself or just cracking jokes. And so he made people feel comfortable. He could really talk to anybody. I, I remember one time we were in a, a hearing for an action we had done and he just had the judge, you know, he was able just to connect with people and make them feel comfortable. The judge was just enjoying that whole conversation when he was on the witness stand. And I thought, wow, he could really charm, you know, anybody. He was just very genuine and committed and he, and fearless. And he would 
take personal risks and he would put himself out there when he believed in something. And so just that daily, seven days a week, he was working, writing, speaking, talking to people, communicating with people, organizing actions, and just constantly, he liked to work on multiple fronts of struggle at once because his, he always felt like his job was to keep trying to push things forward. And, and so if you saw an opportunity in one area, you could try to you know, build on that and amplify that. And so he just really had you know, his, his mind and his eye on, on everything and constantly nurturing it and pushing it forward. And so we've really lost that, but, but there's so much that he created through doing that, that I think that we're all better off because of that. And, and so many people who are dedicated to continuing to, to push, you know, bring that work forward and continue it. So here is a recording of Kevin Zeese himself sending out a message to his people and to all listeners made just a week before his death. So I'm going to vote against Trump by voting for what I believe in. There are more alternatives than the two parties. I'll be voting green candidates, Howie Hawkins, and Angela Walker, because I'm going to be voting for Medicare for all. I'm going to be voting for community control of police, for the eco-socialist Green New Deal, for ending the wealth divide and ending the never-ending wars. We all have the power to vote for what we believe in. Candidates reflect the movement. There are many more choices than the two corrupt candidates of the millionaires. And we need to use the elections, the little power we have in the elections, to send a message for what we are for, to show that those who speak for movement issues get the movement support. After we vote, we must build people power so that people can rule from below. We must build people power so that no matter who's in office, we can stop the government from operating. We can make the country ungovernable. We can put in place general, general strikes so that our demands are heard and met. That is how we will win. We have a lot to build on from the Occupy movement in 2011 through to Black Lives Matter and Fight for 15 and the current uprisings today. There, were, there have been over 900 wildcat strikes since March. The labor movement is going, the climate justice movement is going, the anti-racist movement is going, the anti-inequality movement is going. We have a lot to build on. The 1% cannot defeat the 99% if we are organized. So don't underestimate ourselves. We can stop this issue. We can make the change we want. Power to the people. Thank you all for being here. That was our tribute to internationalist heroes Robert Fisk, Andre Volchek, and Kevin Zeese. May all three of you rest in power. That's it for the Global Research News Hour. Thanks to C-SPAN 2, Book TV, and to Paul Graham for bringing us clips for today's program. We'll be taking a break for the holidays and coming back in January with more pressing stories. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>